Good morning, High Point Church. Um, this morning, um, we are going to hear a message from Isaiah uh, 8, 19 through 9, 7. It was originally intended for the snow day, uh, December 22nd, but I trust it'll just be just as effective today uh, as it would have been then. Um, in your Bibles, if you could turn to page uh, 1072, this morning we're going to talk about a child with four names, a child with four names. Page 1072 in your pew Bibles, and we will read verses 8, 19 through 9, 7 in Isaiah. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. They will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice because you, before you, as people rejoice at the harvest, as men re rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Dear Lord, as we explore... Um, the one to, uh, whom these scriptures refer to, to Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray that we will see how marvelous you are in fresh ways. And Lord, that by seeing your goodness and greatness, Lord, it will inspire those who call upon you to want to be more like you. And it will also bring light to those who don't believe, who, even this morning, that they will turn towards the light in salvation and faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Um, Dr. Uh, Wayne Gordon is the founding pastor of Lawndale Christian uh, Community Church uh, on the west side of Chicago. And he's president of a Christian Community Development Organization. Uh, he is a person who has dedicated his life to spreading the light of the gospel and the love of Christ in areas that have been kind of neglected. Uh, this is a, a three-minute video, very short video, that is narrated by his wife, Anne, about his ministry in Chicago. We'll start with that. Just a short ride down the pink line, there's a neighborhood that has spent the last 50 years in an economic and social crisis. The people have seen the government and society turn its back on the basic needs of the community. Poverty and violence have ruled the streets. The children have not had adequate health care, schools, social programs, or strong leadership to show them a better way. Thirty-five years ago, a young man heard the call of God. He moved into Lawndale and got a job coaching and teaching at the local high school. He fell in love with a young woman and she followed him into his call. We were married and set out on a journey together. We had a rocky start as our apartment was broken into the first night after our honeymoon. We bought an old storefront with an apartment above and started a Bible study through the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Most of the kids who came to the Bible study did not have the proper clothes to attend their local churches. This prompted a study on what the church really is. From that study, the kids decided we needed to start our own church. This was not something Coach, the name the kids used for him, and I had ever planned on or dreamed of. After much prayer and seeking counsel, we decided to step out and start the church. Our philosophy was, and still is, to listen to our community, then develop programs and solutions together based on needs. The issues are vast, everything from health care to a safe place to do laundry. We had someone donate a washer and dryer and open it up for community use. This was the start of transforming a community. Our desire was not just to serve our community, but to love them in a way that empowers them to create change. This equalizes the relationship and allows us to lead from a place of walking alongside the community. As the years have passed, we have continued listening. Out of the Church has grown a health center with four sites that employ over 300 people and had over 140,000 patient visits last year. Our church also started a development corporation that has led to 400 units of rental, 400 units of ownership housing, and about $50 million of development in our community. There are many initiatives, from a residential program for men, a hip-hop church, community arts center, after-school education program, legal center, and much more. The church has grown to 1,000 in attendance and has continued to be a community-centered church. The years have come with many challenges and we have often felt like giving up. But God's faithfulness has been there time after time and has kept us focused on His heart for the community. So the situation in Lawndale 37 years ago was pretty bleak. In fact, I was just at my mom's house in, in Austin which is a community just adjoining Lawndale, about three miles away. And um, it was pretty bleak. Uh, you had poor on top of poor, uh, insufficient housing, uh, under-educated um, people. 
really stark. And so this young man, a Wheaton grad, decides that he is going to uh, become a teacher at a public school in the community. And uh, being a Christian, and when he began to see the needs of the, his students, he was both a teacher and a coach, uh, he knew that something needed to be done. And his, his students kind of egged him on. Um, and we kind of see a similar scenario here in, uh, in Isaiah. It's a hopeless situation where the people have turned against God and there's all kinds of injustice that's going on in Judah at this time. And there needs to be a light. There, there needs to, to be a difference. There needs to be a difference maker to come and set things aright. We're gonna study light in the darkness this morning. This particular uh, sermon is gonna have four points. The first point is that there is very clear darkness in Judah. And into this darkness, as a solution for this darkness, God's going to send light in the future. This light comes into person, it comes in the form of a king. And this is a, a, a king who really starts as a child with four names that the text gives us. And this child is going to live on a throne forever. So these are the four points that we will um, discuss this morning. So the first point is this, that there is darkness in the land. Um, in our text in Isaiah, he uses darkness and light as symbols. These are metaphors, okay? Darkness here means sin. It means wickedness. It means God's uh, impending judgment, okay? You, you see the absence of God's presence is what ultimate darkness is all about, right? That, that's why we labor as a church. We don't, we don't want people to, to experience God's ultimate darkness, to be separated from him. Whereas light means the ability to comprehend God's presence, to be able to understand God's word, to be able to know God's righteousness, to be able to know God's Messiah. That's light. In verse 19, God tells us Isaiah, tells Isaiah what to expect from a people living in Judah who have rejected his ways, who have rejected his light, and who are living in darkness. The people have fallen so far away from their God, and the circumstances have become so dire in Judah that they have begun turning to, to the dead, to mediums and spiritists, to try to get some guidance. Things are bleak and the disaster is upon them, and they're looking for guidance. And here's what occurs to them. This is the speaking of Judah at the time of King Ahaz during Isaiah's ministry. You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants from Jacob. Why have you abandoned? Because they are full of superstitions. From the east, they practice divination like the Philistines, and they clasp hands with pagans, i.e., what they're doing is embracing all of the foreign godless practices of the nations around them including seeking the counsel of dead spirits. To that, God says, to the law and to the testimony, verse 20, if they do not speak according to this word, they have no light in them. So here's the, the situation. They have utterly rejected God's word and turned to dead spirits, and they have rejected God's word totally. This verse here, 524, again speaking of Judah in particular, says, Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw, and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay, and their flowers blow away like the dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty, and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. 
one of the difficult things of uh, pastoral ministry is um, when a troubled person uh, comes to a Christian pastor and um, they're really struggling, life just isn't working for them. They can't hold the job. Their relationships with their closest family members aren't working. And they are uh, bouncing around from state to state, community to community. Uh, th they, need some, they need some light. And so as a pastor, you begin to share with them the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and how he wants them to be rooted and established, how he wants to demonstrate their love to them. But they just can't receive it. They, they, for whatever reason, they just can't comprehend the, the, the light. And so they go back again into darkness. And that's the scene here in verse 21. As opposed to coming to the testimony, as, because, uh, as opposed to coming and listening to Isaiah, what they do is they turn away, distressed and hungry they roam. And then they become so enraged that they even curse their king and their God. Into this futility of darkness, God must send the answer. Those, those of you who are... There's some, some of us are fortunate enough to come to Christ young before we have made shipwreck of our lives. Others of us come later, after there's a shipwreck. Th this is the scenario here. There's a shipwreck and God is sending his Savior to restore lives. Into this context of a rebellious king, King Ahaz, and an idolatrous nation, Judah, God sends his light. His light is a, is a person. He's described as a great light. And he comes in an area that was unexpected in verse 1. It says there in 9-1 that in the land of Zebulun, in the land of the, of the Gentiles. So this speaks of a time uh, in Israel's history around 732 uh, B.C. where um, an, the Assyrian king came to the northern kingdom and totally devastated the land, took the citizens back to Assyria with them, and they left the place essentially desolate. In fact, what they did is he brought foreign citizens into that area and removed the Jewish people out of the area. So fr from that time kind of forward, it became an area partly Jewish, partly foreigner. Into this land of desolation, Jesus Christ comes. And we see that in Isaiah, in Matthew chapter 4. This is Jesus Christ after he had been in the desert for 40 days. He goes back to his home territory of the Galilean area. And we have this testimony about himself. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, very familiar names, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. So here's the prophecy in, in verses 1 and 2. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Galilees, the people who walking in darkness have seen a great light. This great light is Jesus Christ, uh, our Savior who ushers in righteous rule. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, 
for the kingdom of God is at hand. This text in Isaiah 9, 2 through 7 speaks of a time of complete fulfillment of Jesus' second coming. Upon his first coming, he created the church, those who have accepted Christ as, as uh, our Lord and Savior. But in his complete fulfillment, when he comes again, we are going to see joy unspeakable. And that's what we see beginning in verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice in the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. This is a time when all... Human injustice has been set aside. Think of sexism, racism, any kind of social ill that we men have created in our society. When Jesus comes a second time, he is going to set all of this aside. And we are going to enjoy a time of peace and prosperity as never before. And there's going to be such rejoicing, it's going to be like the Packers winning the Super Bowl again. Right? So this is, this is a 2011 when the Packers, think of the, the confetti, think of the party and the celebration that goes on when you've got this ultimate triumph. Or better still, think of the Cubs winning the World Series again. Uh, for the first time, again, from 100 years. Think of the, a time when red, white, and blue Kool-Aid will just flow. In fact, they'll probably set the, the, the city down for a, for a month. The celebration will be so dynamic. This, the picture here is utter triumph. The picture here is complete peace and prosperity. The picture here is everything that's a scourge and a blight on your life and mine is totally removed. And what God is saying here in the text is that He's trying to give the people a comparison, something that they can kind of put their arms on. So the illustration, he didn't give them the Packers and the Bears or the Cubs like I gave you. He gave them a time in their history of Gideon with 300 men going against thousands of soldiers, the Amalekites and, and the Midianites. 300 men went against an a, a untold army that came against them. And the scripture says that the, whole, the, the, the power of the Spirit caused the Amalekites and the Midianites to turn against each other and kill themselves. And then the 300 men just went out and did a mop-up job. This is the, the situation that, that we see here. In verses 4 and 5, there's no more war in Syria. There's no more fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. There's no more murders in the streets of Chicago, my hometown, where tens, hundreds even of, of school kids get killed every year. None of that. All of God's enemies, both physical and spiritual, are going to be set aside, and there's going to be total peace in the land. Now, how does that all come about? This is my third point. First point was there's darkness in the land. Second point is God sends a light. He sends the Messiah. He sends Jesus Christ at his appointed time. The third point is this. God's going to do it by sending a child. This is kind of an amazing thing when you think about it. When we think of uh, heroes of our current time, we think of great champions with physical stature, 
super football stars or such, but God is going to send a child who is going to be God Almighty. I like the way retired Pastor Eric Alexander talks about this. God sending a child who is both human and God. He is an infant with all the frailties of human flesh, all the frailties of our own children. Yet, at the same time, he is almighty God. He is eternal God incarnate. The theologians talk about this as the theanthropos, theos, Greek for God, and, and um, uh, man, in, in, incarnate in the flesh, the anthropos, man. This is the kind of God that we're going to get. How does he come? It's an amazing story that the angel tells Mary how this God-man comes to us. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God went, sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. So we're back in that, that town in, in Zebulun, that, that Galilean area, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now Mary was greatly distressed at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. She being a common girl, um, not of a great family per se, no wealth. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? How can I have a baby who is going to be God? How can this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So God moves miraculously upon a, a woman, a person like you and I. And through the Holy Spirit, our, our child who is king comes. Now we know this child as the child with four names. This is point three, child with four names. He is the one that's going to dispel the darkness from our hearts. He is the one that's going to bring light to our soul. His first name is Wonderful Counselor. Now, people today generally recognize that they need counsel. They recognize that they need counsel for, for marriage and maybe for raising their kids and career counseling and financial counseling. The trouble is, though, with this whole, this whole notion that people recognizing that they need counsel is that at the same time, the researchers are showing that, that men increasingly deny that there is absolute moral truth. 
In fact, in 2002, Barna did a research study across American, Christians and non-Christians. And here's what they found. They asked them a simple question. Do you believe that there is moral truth that governs affairs or are things relative, subject to the circumstances? 22% of Americans said that, 66, 64% of Americans said that truth is relative. It depends on the circumstances. Only 22 believe in absolutes. And amongst teenagers, the numbers are even worse. 83% believe that there is truth that governs their, their circumstances. Now, Barna, as they summed up this research, they came to a conclusion. This is their conclusion. As they finished their research, they said, Americans are most likely to base truth on their feelings. It all depends on how you feel at a given time, and you should seek counselors that are expert in, in philosophy and that, uh, that think as you do. The only problem is this is at total odds with the God of Scripture. This is at total odds with the God Isaiah knew who said this. My thoughts, Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. It's incumbent upon men to recognize that our Creator is um, omniscient, that He knows all things, and that our guidance should be gained from Him. In fact, if we don't have that basic level of humility, there's no way that we can learn ultimate truth and wisdom. Psalms 25 in the Old Testament puts it this way, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his way. Sinners here is both those who have been redeemed, those who have come to Christ, and those who never have received him. He instructs sinners in the way. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. Have you ever thought about how precious it is? I think, um, I think teachers probably have the best understanding of the benefits of humility. Teachers can always instruct a child who comes quietly, sits in the front row, and is eager to learn. It's this way in spiritual things. It doesn't just show up in, in, in academics at Verona and Middleton High School at the UW. It's also true in spiritual things. Are you the kind of person who spiritually comes and sits in the front row, eager to learn more of God and to put his things in practice, eager to do what Tozer says, lives the crucified life, abandoned completely to the word of God, eager to learn and grow? This is the kind of person that's required to receive the wonderful counsel of God. Even in the New Testament, James, the brother of Jesus, puts it this way. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, it's available. All of Proverbs essentially gives the same instruction. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Listen, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. His name, one of his names is the Word, the utterance of God that has put on flesh 
that has lived with God for all eternity, all that he speaks of, of everything the scriptures speak of, is pure perfection, is righteousness and truth. You can take it to the bank as you apply your life to it. He is the only counselor that can lead you into eternal life. He is the only counselor that can turn a shipwrecked, sin-cursed life around. One of the reasons I love to hear testimonies about people who've come to know this Jesus is they can tell you about the shipwreck and the change, the restoration of families, the, the, the improvement in finances, the ability to actually be of some benefit in the world. God is a wonderful counselor. Everything that Christ speaks of is awesome counselor for us. That is the first of his names. The second of his names is that he is mighty God. What I like about Jesus is this. Not only does he speak of big things, he can deliver big things. There is a testimony of a, a woman who learned this firsthand. Her name is Helen Baylor. Helen now is a recording artist, a Dove Award-winning recording artist but things haven't, weren't always so great for her. When she was seven years old, she lived in Tulsa with her family, and, um, and uh, under the guidance of their grandmother, she prospered. Her family was in church with her parents and children, and things did well. But dad's job got transferred to Los Angeles, to the Hollywood area. The family moved to Hollywood. In a very short time thereafter, they stopped going to church, they stopped looking for ultimate guidance and truth, it wasn't too long before on the weekends the parents were in the clubs and believe it or not they started dragging their daughter along. And when the club owners found out she was a wonderful singer, they put her to work. She cut her first album. She began opening up for Stevie Wonder and B.B. King. By the time she was 16, she earned more money than her parents. She left. She had her first child at 17, got introduced to drugs at 18, marijuana, pills, and alcohol. Went on the road tra traveling for 12 years. In short order, cocaine became her drug of use. At one point she was uh, in Houston and she met a man who was on the lighting crew and they, they began dating and she didn't know it at the time but he was a cocaine dealer and before long he had enlisted her and she was delivering drugs for, for him. Occasionally she'd be at her, in her, uh, at home on the weekends and she'd be listening to, to TV, channel, channel surfing. And occasionally she would hear a preacher and, and she just felt compelled to stop and listen. And she would listen and she would be immediately convicted. She would remember what she had heard in the church, what her grandmother had taught her. She knew what the lifestyle she was living was wrong. She knew there was a Jesus. She didn't have a great relationship with him, but she knew that there was a different way. And so she would throw her drugs away only to reclaim them the next morning. She went through this for a period of two years until she hit rock bottom. One day she was completely stoned, fell back, hit her wall, head on the wall. And as she was slipping down the wall, she prayed. This is her prayer. Jesus, she said, take me back. I want to come home, Jesus. I know you are real. Take away all these drugs. I'm so tired of this stuff. Her testimony is that instantly she was set free. No detox, no therapy. She was free from drug addiction. Within a couple of months, God had saved her boyfriend. They, they married the last 15, 20 years they've been on the road singing, telling her testimony and singing to God. 
Now, one of the great qualities I like about God is that there is nothing too hard for him to accomplish. This is what he told Abraham and his wife, Sarah, when they were, when, when he was, she was 90 and, and he was 100. He said there was nothing too hard for him, that they were going to have a child through him. Am I guaranteeing you that when you bring your problems to God, that it will be like Helen Baylor or like Lazarus in John chapter 11, who the scripture says was dead four days and God rose him from the dead? No, I'm not saying that to you. I can't promise that I don't know what God's will is for your life, but I can say this. If you are an unbeliever today and you come to this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, he will turn your whole life around. Not only will you have eternal life, he will teach you how to live in righteousness and truth today. Salvation is not just about eternity. One of the things that really I tried to lead my dad to Christ. And uh, as he got older, he was in the hospital because he had heart problems. And he had a bad relationship with all of his children. And so I was really the only one that would come and minister to him, would take care of him. But I love my dad and I would try to share with him Christ. And he would say to me, Lloyd, he says, I need my blessing today. Somehow he had got a gospel that was only good for eternity. No, no. Gospel, God, through Christ, is offering you a blessed life today. That's why we have, look at, just go to Matthew chapter 6 and read the Sermon on the Mount and all the tremendous blessings and provision that God has in terms of answered prayer, the kind of father that he is. He won't just give you a scorpion, he'll give you bread. That he will, if you will seek him with all of your life, he'll make sure that all of your needs are provided for. Dad, I tried to say, Dad, he'll take care of you today, not just in the future. He'll turn around your relationships today. That's the kind of God that we serve. He, he works a mighty miracle in your life, restoring relationships and families and marriages. We even hear the testimonies here at our church of restored families. That's the work of Jesus Christ. That's what happens when light comes into your life. He's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. He's not a in the genie kind of God. I'm not promising you prosperity. I'm promising you a God who's going to walk with you through thick and thin. And he will take care of your needs, just like he's been doing for me nearly 50 years. So he is a mighty God. The other thing he is, is everlasting father. I'll make this quick point. Jesus is a, this, this, this point quickly. Jesus is a father in the sense that everything that exists in creation, he holds it together. He created it and he holds it together. That's Colossians 1, 15 and 17. He's also the, the father in the sense that he is the father of eternal life. Without Jesus coming, dying, raising, offering eternal life to those who have come to him in repent, repentance and faith, none of us knows eternal life. He's the father of eternal life. And he's also the father in a Trinitarian sense. The doctrine of the Trinity says this simply, that God 
is one being who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is unity in diversity. I like that. God is unity in his diversity. The Father and the Son are one and the same God. This is the point that Jesus made emphatically to Philip in John chapter 14. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Philip says, show me the Father. He said, Philip, have you been with me so long that you don't know that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father? He is the expressed image of the eternal God. So if you call upon Christ as your Lord and Savior, he is your Father, just as much God Almighty as the Father that we speak of in scriptures. One being, three persons. Jesus Christ is our everlasting Father. And lastly, he's the Prince of Peace. When you look at Isaiah 9, 2 through 7, when you take that all into your spirit, what you see is a perfect picture of complete and utter peace. All of God's enemies, human and spiritual, have been set aside. There is nothing to corrupt, no sin. That's why this is a picture of his second coming in 2 through 7. This is a picture of perfect peace. Now, you who have come to Christ, once you come to Christ, God offers you two kinds of peace. The first I call relational peace. The scripture talks about this as peace with God. The second I call functional peace. The scripture talks about this as the peace of God, relational peace. One of the things that is important to me as a father in my home is that my wife and my children have peace at home, that they love coming home, that even if my wife and I have disagreements, we work those out, and when she comes home, there is peace, there's no friction, there's no friction between her and me, no friction between us and the children, and my two sons, they should be back here somewhere, my two sons, I want there to be peace at home. In fact, that's why that they need it. Jason, is that you back there, Jared? I see you back there. Listen, one of the reasons why it's important to me that my kids be steeped in the faith is that I want peace for them, and I want peace in my home. We all got to be on the same bus. The bus is moving out. It's, it's, it's walking in Jesus Christ. And boys, you got to be on the bus. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You will be on the bus. You're 19 years old, you're in my house, you're at church serving the Lord. I'm asking you questions. What did you learn from Derek's ministry? I want peace in my home. I want peace for my kids. They should have provision. They should have boundaries. There should be peace at home. This is what God does for us in spades. He provides you relational peace once you come to him. You don't have to worry about how you are or where do you fit. God receives and loves you as you are. You are his child. He provides for your needs. He's going to handle it. He's going to take care of it. This is relational peace. And the second one is just as important, maybe more important. It's functional peace. The peace of God. This is the kind of thing you need when you're going through a trial. It's kind of thing that Peter talked about in Acts 5. They went out doing God's work, ran into opposition, beating. You remember what they did? They rejoiced 
because they fully recognized that man could not do anything to them, that their eternal future was secure in Christ. So they considered it a privilege to suffer shame for his name, and they rejoiced. This is the peace of God. I'm trying to tell you this is the kind of peace you need as you're going through the death of a loved one, difficulties that are unplanned that you didn't even plan, you didn't, there was nothing you did. You need God's stable peace. One of my friends is a, name, a guy by the name James Gray. And I met James about 15 years ago. We were serving in a ministry together. He still serves as the head of their deacon's ministry at Waukegan Baptist Bible Church, and I was a preaching minister there. We became great prayer partners and friends. A lot of similarities. You know, both of us married over our heads, and we had two kids. Good. He's the poster child of God's quiet strength, James Gray. Anyway, James came down with cancer. He called me up, this was 2012, late in the year, saying, Lord, I got colon cancer. It's pretty aggressive, I gotta get on this stuff. And so for the next several months, I went and visited him and prayed, and he had radiation, he had chemo, he had surgery. By June, the doctors thought he was in good shape. And they declared him cancer-free. He even came to my installation service. Called me about three weeks ago, Lloyd, cancer's returned. And you know, I know that even when people have been declared cancer-free that they can show up again. But this one really took me for a loop. I was like, God, you know, I was really hoping that this would be a Helen Baylor kind of thing. Man, total devastation, total walk in freedom for at least, you know, 20, 30 years, but it wasn't happening. And it caught me by surprise. Now, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to give encouraging things to people, and I'm supposed to be ready with a word of hope. But this, I was just, maybe I was probably more messed up than James was. And so um, I said to James something I usually wouldn't ask somebody going through a situation like this. I said, James, you've got to be a little discouraged. And here's what James said to me. I'll never forget it. Lloyd, I know the God who I serve is a good God. He has been blessing me all of my life. James has got a wonderful family, godly children, a great testimony, man. Everybody, in, everybody around him knows what a godly man he is. God has been blessing me my whole life. Now, Lord, I expect to be healed, but I know that whatever happens, everything is going to be all right. I might have to get my healing in heaven, but I'm going to get healed. You just keep praying for my family and me. That is the peace of God. This is what John, this is what Jesus was talking about to his disciples about chapter 15, 16, when he said, my peace I leave with you. This is the peace that can take you through the ups and downs of life. Now, I know many of you have been going through struggles, and I have seen this peace in your life as you've been walking through things. If you are an unbeliever, this is one of the, the untold blessings beyond economic value that we have in Jesus Christ. We have peace through the darkest of times. But I'll tell you what, I don't know if I could handle a situation like James could. Truth be told, I'm glad that I have his example. 
because my time might come again when I'm trying to struggle with my father or maybe even I, I don't want to live I don't want to be sick like that I don't want my kids to be sick like that but I believe that the power of God through the Holy Spirit will give me peace just like he gave James to endure that difficulty when you guys are in your small groups those of you who are in small groups I want you to ask yourselves a question this is something that you really got to get for yourself before the storm. Have you ever experienced the peace of God in your mind and heart, even as you worked through a troubling experience? Sometimes God doesn't deliver you from the trial. Sometimes he builds maturity in, in the trial, through the trial. And you need to see evidence of his peace in your life because he is the prince of peace last point point four we talked about point one we talked about darkness in the land point two we talked about God's in the light point three was that this light was a child with four names wonderful counselor almighty God everlasting father prince of peace fourth point final point this kingdom has no end one of the things that should give you confidence and should give you a zeal for enthusiasm is that there is sure to be a time when what Paul wrote in Philippians 2 10 and 11 will come true he said there you remember every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord here in Isaiah 9 2 through 7 once this rain comes in that's the time this is the time when every knee will confess Every person will confess that Jesus is Lord. And I'm looking forward to this time. In fact, our hope as Christians and why we're serving in the Dominican Republic and why Kathleen will talk about her trip to India and, uh, and why the Williamses are working in Ecuador, even witnessing to people in Ecuador. We, we want every person to come to Christ while there's still time. So our, as Christians, we have salvation and we want everyone to experience the blessedness that comes from God that we're talking about in this child with four names. We want everyone to experience that. And I like the way songwriters and artists think about this time of blessedness that they're gonna receive. Mercy Me, they had a big hit about five, six years ago. I can only imagine, the songwriter said, surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to sing it all? And Phillips, Craig, and Dean have updated it now. They've got a song that they call, When the Stars Burn Down, singing blessing and honor and glory and power forever to our God. This is our hope. This is what we have to look forward to. This is our richness in Christ Jesus. I look forward to seeing Jesus, my father. My father, earthly father, didn't know the Lord, but this father has been good to me. Everything that he has promised, he's delivered. 
I look forward to seeing Jesus, my brother. We have a God who is our father, our brother, and our friend. He lets us know his will for our lives. We know what he is doing in advance. Jesus is our friend. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away all of our sins. Jesus is our protector. Nothing that happens to us happens without his authorization. Jesus is everything you need. And so we encourage you once again to consider as a member and a tender of High Point Church, those two people that are in your network that don't know the Lord, we want you to continue to pray and to seek God's opportunity to invite them in to hear Pastor Nick, to hear the gospel presented, that they would come to Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, today is your day. The scripture says today is the acceptable day of salvation. The wonderful counselor, the Holy Spirit is willing to guide you into eternal life today. Won't you bow your heads with me? Dear Lord, how wonderful you are. We could have a thousand sermons about the depths of your character, of your beauty, of your love and your grace, and we still wouldn't even have a thimbleful of the reality of who you are. But Lord, we want to get to know you better. We want those who have not accepted you as Savior to come to you, and those of us who know you, we want to go deeper into this crucified life where we forsake the world and cast ourselves totally onto you, allowing you to accomplish in our lives what you want to accomplish, trusting you totally. That's our goal. We ask this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us as we sing our last song together.